where are you guys based? Uh, we're, we're in the Bay Area. Oh, cool. Just, just south of San Francisco, yeah. Oh, great, great. What about yourself? I'm in Los Angeles, right in the Hollywood Hills, right by um, Laurel. I'm in Laurel Canyon, which is. Oh. Kind of, is Laurel nice. Canyon still cool? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, okay. it's kind of, you know, it's not like the hippest, like n- as far as neighborhoods go, um, you know, everyone goes to like further east, like Los Feliz, Silver yeah. Lake, um, Highland Park. Those are the very hip areas. This yeah. is kind of the older, um, you know, a hippie area, I guess. But, uh, yeah. you know, uh, my neighbor is uh, Bill Mooney from Lost in Space. Um, oh, hell yeah. Little kid. Um, and uh, and then there was a cinematographer up the road who was, I think he just moved away. But uh, he shot uh, uh, Fear and Loathing. He shoots all of Terry Gilliam's movies. So it's, oh, it's quite a cool. He's like a mad Italian guy, crazy Italian. But I would I would expect nothing less if you were you know <laughs> working with uh, Gilliam on that. But you you talk about Bill Mummy. That's funny because I was uh, I was a big fan of Gilbert Gottfried, and he would yeah. talk about Bill Mummy like every other week. <laughs> it was uh, yeah. So as soon as you said it, made that made me think of uh, our dearly departed Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm looking at everybody's background. It's it's really cool to see. Uh, what what i'm looking at randy's uh i see there's uh oh the conversation chinatown and then yeah. audition then uh, russell has the audition okay cool oh, and then he's, he's got hulk eyes over <laughs> here man and then you've got the uh i see friday the 13th that's great i always love that poster it was the friday the 13th posters and we got uh a signed texas chainsaw back here wow who signed it uh Gunner or uh, one of those That's guys. Gunner. Oh, you got lucky. He threw no, the name I know. out. <laughs> so, so Russell and I are in the same room. I know it was Gunner. Thank you very much. Russell and I are in the same room. And uh, this is on my end. I, I'm just facing the good wall here, Kevin. Um, it's. I just want you to think it's not stolen valor on my part. None of this is mine. <laughs> oh, very cool. That's great. And uh, and you're, are you guys near Berkeley or are you kind of near? We're, we're on the other side. We're just next to um, uh, SFO. Okay. So in, in San Bruno, yeah, <laughs> not as cool. cool. Yeah, not not as cool. <laughs> not as cool. Rand, Randy was an East Bay uh, East Bay cat before he uh, went over to Atlanta. So Randy's over in Atlanta now, and we're he left us over here in San Francisco to rot and pay too much. Yeah. <laughs> Randy's also deeply embarrassed to be a part of a lowbrow horror podcast, so he's really got to show off his like French New Wave love with all his posters. <laughs> very, his pinky out <laughs> film collection. <laughs> Pinky's up, man. Uh, but don't worry, we have some of that too. We got some. We pinky do. Out. <laughs> Look, you have the seagull from uh, the lighthouse behind you. That's Clark. true. That that is the one thing. Yeah. <laughs> then oh, next cool. to you know milk bottles of blood. Oh wow! <laughs> That's so, awesome. Kevin, it, I'm not surprised that you're you're looking at our backgrounds and that you have an eye for detail. <laughs> because, you know, when you mentioned Terry Gilliam, the first thing I thought was the the cinemascape that you make in your films have the same. I, you know, when you talk about film all the time and we review it and like critique it and who the fuck are we? Um, well, I think we appreciate it more than we critique. Yeah. It. And, you know, one of the things that I've started using as shorthand is like Terry Gilliam-esque. And I always yeah. refer to that. For like Delamorte, Delamore, which is, you know, 
a foreign film, but everything in frame is almost like hyper realistic. Like if you're working at an office, there's like stacks of papers to the ceiling. Yeah. Like, like it's surreal, but it also is tangible. Yes. And I feel like that's uh, an, an awesome segue into working with puppets where we're kind of walking down the uncanny Valley. And I mean, I think it was two and a half years ago we watched The Haunted Swordsman. Yeah, right there at Chattanooga. And we we just watched it again. And um, man, I had the exact same experience I did last time. And oh. I, I wrote it down, my train of thought, because it opened. And my, I remember when we first watched it, I love the poster art. It felt very um, Frank Frazetta. Yes, me. that's what I was going for. But now here's the problem. I also contributed to a Kickstarter that had a very Frank Frazetta poster. Uh, it was for the movie 31 by Rob Zombie. That movie <laughs> did not embody Frazetta in any way. Yeah. And I even felt a little burnt after that movie came out. Yeah. So when I saw you, it, you've fallen for the Frazetta trap several your whole life. It happened. Because you thought you were going to enjoy Molly Hatchet. <laughs> yes. No. That's so you're like, what the hell is this shit? We, my brother and I used to buy them, the, the Molly Hatchet albums, you know, just for the cover. And then. Then you put the music on. You're like, this isn't <laughs> at all. But yeah, that's not the soundtrack to that, Conan. Yeah, no. doesn't match up. <laughs> no. And then you know, so when I when I see the Hunted Swordsman, I'm like, oh, I don't know. I've been duped by fantastic art before. <laughs> and and honestly, I didn't even know it was. Um, I didn't know anything about it. We we just knew that we were in for Chattanooga. It was during the lockdown, and we're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're here. Let's just whatever they've curated. There's a reason. Let's jump into it. We didn't do any retro. That was like the one rule. But we jumped into that and I'm like, oh, is this animated? Because we get that that wide shot of like a, I don't know, it almost looks like a Greek kind of um, mythos, like crag, like mountain. Yeah. You know, when um that show, oh, what the fuck was it on? Was it on Cinemax, the Spartan show? Spartacus. Yes. We always called it, um, oh my God. We were, we had a joke about it because it was like it was like hyper macho Mount Olympus gladiator yeah. shit, right? And I, I had a little bit of that there, but then we cut and we see a clearly what looks like a puppet hand, yeah. And I remember just pure shock. Oh yeah, I was like, wait, is that a? And then th- we cut to what looks like an actor climbing a wall, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, wait, what are we doing here? But then we cut to that to that beautiful puppet. The uh, James Hahn de- decrepit head in a in a cage, yeah, and I, that's when you got my heart. <laughs> so, heart in a cage, <laughs> dude. It's I, you know, I other than um, flattering you, I just that experience right there. There's something about puppeteering, we just never see it anymore. So where the hell have you been, man? <laughs> well, well, thanks so much. I, you know, I work in creature effects and, uh, I've worked at all the shops over the years. So I, you know, I had my start at, I'm from Pittsburgh. So I started at Savini's way back, um, while I was still in film school, kind of helping him on summer breaks. And then the best advice I got was like, move out to LA and just try to get work at Stan Winston's. And I just arrived. I was like, kind of, pure luck, you know, the timing couldn't have been better. They were starting Batman Returns. I got on Batman Returns and that went into Jurassic Park, Interview with the Vampire and so on, so on. So over the years, I've worked at all these different creature shops and I miss my 
filmmaking roots from film school. So I had worked on all these puppets and creatures over all the years. And I wanted to get back to like filmmaking and making a short. And I knew that Heather Henson, who is Jim Henson's youngest daughter, offers this um, uh, kind of a grant for filmmakers to do a puppet film. So I just was like, well, I'll just give it a shot. I'll make one character um, and have him uh, poking around, you know, a, a guy with a lantern just poking around creepy hall hallways and I'll pitch it to her. And that was my first film narrative of Victor Carlock. And uh, I've just been going ever since, like, you know, they take a couple years to make. So I'll make a puppet film, yeah. take a, you know, then start planning the next one and then uh, kickstarting it and, uh, you know, moving forward that way. So it's, it's been, I, I feel like I've reached my calling. Like I have to keep making these puppet films and, you know, I, I like Muppets and, you know, I've, I've a big fan of dark crystal and, and labyrinth, but I kind of wanted to do something that was very gritty and grounded and uh, like very textural, like every frame, you know, was dense with all this, um, the, all this set dressing and, and the characters look intense. So I, I kind of, that's sort of where I'm coming from. And, uh, I, I think it's, uh, kind of found an audience, but uh, Kevin, you've already mentioned it and, um, you know, the name of, of Henson and, mm -hmm. you know, obviously Henson is going to be synonymous with the art of puppetry. And I, I just, my question to you is so much of like starting out in puppetry. I mean, how, in, how influential, you know, is sort of just the, the name and the aura of what the Henson name has become. Like you can't escape that. Right. Like it always, like it's at the beginning of your journey probably. Absolutely. right? And it's quite intimidating. Like meeting, you know, I was, kind of nervous to meet Heather Henson. She was the first of the Hensons that I, I met and, uh, she couldn't have been more down to earth. Heather is wonderful. And, uh, well, just, these are Mississippi folks, Kevin, I'm from Mississippi as well. So <laughs> I sign off of the Henson. Yeah. And, um, and then over the years I've met the other sisters, uh, Cheryl and Lisa and Brian, and then I met Brian and, um, they've all been kind of champions. Like, uh, you know, whenever I meet them, they're just like, go, 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 keep on making your films. So, um, it's, they've been wonderfully supportive. It was intimidating at first and every, every so often when you're talking to them, you know, you kind of have that out of body, like I'm talking to Jim Henson's, you know, daughters and, you know, his family. So it's, um, you know, you kind of have that out of body experience and then you kind of come back to like, okay, I'm, I'm here to make a film. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's been wonderful. Now, I'm going to push back on that a little bit. Here we go. Now, it's been <laughs> wonderful. Now, as a fan <laughs> of, um, I grew up with a labyrinth on repeat. I loved it, and I wasn't even sure why when I was so little. And um, I apologize because I know people on the show have heard this story before. But a long time ago, when you could just drive to San Diego and walk into Comic Con, yes, like I'm talking about a different lifetime. Yeah, I went and they did a, I got, I think it was a 20th year anniversary of the labyrinth and dark crystal. And this, you know, back then it was early internet and it was when you went to a convention, this was really the only time you got to hang out with other like-minded people. So you would go there and be like, Oh shit, people like pinhead. 
It's weird because <laughs> normally you don't run into people like that. Yeah. And you went there and it, they had a hotel um, ballroom blocked off and hundreds of people in here. They had a sure. David Bowie impersonator who was walking around with the little orbs and everybody was just, you know, you talk to anybody and everybody's like, puppets the best. Why don't they just stop making regular movies and everything should be puppeteered. And they get up there and the Hensons had a big announcement that they were going to make a dark crystal show. Mm-hmm. And at the very end of this thing, they're like, now, the one, the one caveat is that um, we're not going to be able to build sets. There's just not enough money. So we're going to do a little bit of digital work. But everything else is going to be in camera, puppetry. And there was a line of, God, like 50 people. Mm-hmm. I swear, 90% of these people. Um, I'm really excited for the new project. But why, why are you doing digital? Like, can you just not? Um, I mean, I'm pretty sure you could build the sets. Everybody. And I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's a compliment because people love the artistry so much that they don't want to see a compromise. But now falling into the puppet world, I don't know if that's a blessing and a curse because I'm going to pivot quickly over to a monster palooza I went to. Now, I believe they showed one of your shorts there. Okay. I think it was the mill at Calder's End. Sure. Okay. Now, one of our buddies, he used to be the third chair on the show. Uh, He was so smitten. He absolutely loved it, and he was so excited to buy it. And then I think he got his hands on it and went, oh, dude, it's just a short. And I remember, and it gave me a flashback to it where I'm like, the people have this intense love for this artistry, but they don't want any kind of compromise, and they want more of it. And there's no really, like, I feel like with the stop-motion community, it's almost like Randy with all of his, uh, you know, French New Wave posters. There's a lot of... uh, there's a lot of excuses that come like, Oh dude, it takes so long to make stop motion. Like anybody who's into like Wallace and Gromit will, the first thing they lead with is how hard it is to make those movies. Yeah. You don't hear that from Henson people. I don't, is anybody cutting you slack out there? Um, you know, I, I, it does take (laughs) me a ton. It does take a lot of time. I see, you know, in the, when you look at the old photos of, um, the dark crystal sets that were built back in the eighties, you know, those were monumental and that was like such an investment and, uh, you know, took up a lot of, a lot of, um, you know, stage space and everything like that. So, you know, that was such a, a crazy, you know, I mean, Jim Henson was going out on such a limb, you know, with building all that stuff. And, um, you know, it's, it was so ambitious and I think, you know, in, in modern times, I think all the, every single studio just sees like, well, we don't have to build a big set if we have a giant green screen, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so in the, in the modern era, you know, I think they just go for, you know, they build some practical things and then, you know, they have a lot of green screen happening. Um, that's, I guess, my my answer. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I, I love, you know, like my approach was very Roger Corman. I had a couple rocks and I had to keep <laughs> on like moving the set to kind of like have the rock background. But I was like, I'm going to try to avoid all green screen and just add smoke where, you know, I don't have any stage. So it's if if you watch closely, it's like the same rock is moved around a lot. Um, and, uh, 
that was my approach. You know, I, I don't, um, I guess I'm just not a big fan of green screen. And then also, um, that like, I come from a very practical world where I know like how long a set takes to build, you know, what we need for the frame. Whereas if I just leave it up to a green screen and go, Oh, we'll fill it in later. Um, that's such a mystery. And I kind of produced the whole thing. So I knew I was watching the money, um, you know, trickle down. So I had to kind of really know, I didn't want to leave a great mysterious gap of like someone, a digital person at the end saying, I'm going to have to build this set, you know, digital set that'll take forever, you know, so, and cost a lot. So, um, I just used, I, I did it very Corman style. Hey, and it's beautiful. And, uh, we did watch it very closely, uh, like, Five minutes ago, we have a projector set up so we can properly view these things. And, uh, dude, it's fantastic. You you mentioned going for a textural feel to your film, and uh, you're completely correct. I anytime I see a movie with like great um, warmth in like the levels of black and like texture, I always think of Eraserhead because that movie kind of taught me to appreciate oh. texture. Oh yeah, yeah, I love it. I definitely get those vibes from there, but more, I think what I was asking there with my last very long winded question was the, I'm glad you recognize the, the fandom has a fervor and I feel like all they want is your blood. Like I feel like, <laughs> that, like, here, like if I'm being honest, town to flesh, what I want from the, the haunted swordsman is, uh, you know, 45 more minutes at <laughs> least. And that's good. And but it's good, but it's also I feel like if I was the creator who clearly put blood, sweat, and tears into that thing, because it's fucking yeah. dude, it's a ride at 15 minutes. <sighs> I would feel like my answer would be like, shut the hell up. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like Well, I, I also come from I mean, I'm a huge fan of you know, love, death, and robots and and uh that those those length of shorts, and I do I do love the short film, I think. Like this, you know, I, I try to pack in as much as you can in 15 minutes. Um, and I feel like if it, if it would have gone on longer, I mean, I, of course, I'd love to do a feature. But I also think I, I do like I do think people get a little bit of puppet fatigue after a while. And they kind of um, it works so well in the short format. Mm. And, um, you know, I. Uh, as much as I, you know, I, I was psyched that a Dark Crystal series was coming out, but I kind of really wish the episodes were shorter, um, to be honest. And I would have, they would have had more punch, I think. Yeah, puppet fatigue, that's a weird thing. <laughs> but it's true. And, you know, there's really not a lot to look back on um, as far as, like, puppet features. Because I know Team America is the first one that pops to mind. Right. Um, which, is, which is kind of like a parody of the whole thing. What was the puppet crime noir comedy that I quite enjoyed that everyone hated? Oh, I don't know. You're From, gonna... like, to, with Melissa McCarthy. What was that? Uh, called? Happy Time Murders. Happy Time Murders. I thought I had fun Well, with that's Happy a different Time kind Murders. of puppet. Does that kind of puppet count? I feel like it's what you do is like, no, it's a, it's a Muppet puppet. I feel like what Kevin does is highbrow puppetry. Okay. Where like, you want to come elevated puppetry, <laughs> dude. Is that what you want to do? You're laying I, down that Sesame streets a little close to the sock puppet or if, you know, whoa, dude, is that, is that fair, Kevin? Or I don't know. Online? I feel like we're getting it's nice. Puppets. Yeah. It's a very different style. And, uh, you know, it, it definitely has, 
its um, its place. And I mean, there's a lot of, I mean, just like a, a lot of animation you see these days, um, people go for like the shock comedy. And I mean, that's kind of an easy one to mm-hmm. go for. And like to, I, you don't see too many. I mean, I think you're starting to see it like Love, Death and Robots or or Primal, the, the animated series. Um, where they're just taking it very, it's not ironic. It's just very, uh, like a very serious, uh, treatment of a story, um, using animation or puppets. And so that's where I'm coming from. Yeah. You know, what was that? What was that one movie we watched? It was the, it was like real actors, but the puppets were in there and it was like a porno. Oh, um, let my puppets come. (laughs) <laughs> it's it's also a parody and it's funny because i'm thinking about it I'm, a lot of puppets are played as like i don't what's the joke there where you're playing off of like a non-human oh we it, it, for 90 minutes we were trying to figure out what the joke was <laughs> in that one um yeah but i mean it's weird because you think of stop motion and everybody thinks of it as like this highbrow kind of like you're sculpting art form but puppets mm-hmm. usually get a non-serious treatment which, yeah. you know, it's funny because I remember in the early days when we started doing this Overlook stuff, Hansel and Gretel came out and they had that animatronic that felt like uh, like Ludo from Labyrinth. Do you know what I'm talking about? It was the Jeremy Renner. Is he Hawkeye? Oh, uh, yeah. oh yeah. Actually, our, the company I work for um, built that. It's uh, We did all the effects for... Uh, Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunter, the the Jeremy Renner, and you, that's Edward the Troll, which was a big animatronic uh, character. Dude, that troll elevated that movie into collector worthy status. I own three Ooh. copies of that movie because of the. Ooh. I feel like we need a graphic <laughs> or or uh, you know a, a stinger. Have you ever seen the movie? No, it's just it's like Hoggle from uh, Labyrinth. I know these are all foreign words to you. Now, now look, you know I ha- I struggle with the fantasy. <laughs> Now, Kevin, I struggle with fantasy. Okay. But one thing I don't struggle with, for whatever reason, I love a samurai. <laughs> I love a shogun. Give me, give me all that stuff. But if you throw in a dragon or any sort of Camelot shit, I don't care, well, Kevin. <laughs> Hansel so, and Gretel, I think you could you could mess with that movie because it's kind of a modernized version. So okay. they got some cool guy stuff going on. I and need some sort of, you know. Well, and the, it's, uh, the director of Dead Snow did it. If you saw Dead Snow, oh, yeah. oh okay, dude. So Dead Snow's it, had, it has an, a nice like level of like gore comedy to it. That's uh, you know fun. Um, All right. Tommy Warcola was the director of that. Um, and then uh, just getting back, you mentioned um, the the Comic Con experience where you people were lining up and they were questioning um, the you know the CG you know yeah. whether the puppets and what's interesting is so before dark crystal the age of resistance was shot they did a test shoot like a two-week-long test shoot of uh of they wanted to do a dark crystal like a gelfling and skexies um test and lisa i was really honored i got this email like lisa henson was like hey do you want to come down and work for a week on this uh test shoot that we do and just shadow the director and uh, Louis Leterrier, who's a wonderful, wonderful guy. Uh, just the, the best, um, a wonderful director. He, he, 
he's a shooter. He handhold, he operates the camera every shot. So he's oh. quite, quite a, a, an accomplished director and cinematographer. Anyway, they said, come down for a week and we're testing. We're just going to shoot some tests with the Skeksis. And we're, we're questioning whether we want to do a CG Gelfling. Like, so, oh. uh, and, uh, and Clark, the, the Gelflings are the, the, <laughs> the, the kind of the hero character. They're okay. kind of the elf characters. That They're are our like, protagonist? Yes. <laughs> okay. And the Skeksis are the evil, like lizard kind of guys. Understood. So they wanted, they were, they were testing to see if it would work if they had a puppet character working against a CG character. And they just, ultimately, they said, no, it just has to be all puppets because it was too much, too jarring. Uh, and, for the audience to like kind of accept it no matter how good the and the digital characters you know looked pretty great you know like Gollum but there was something about the textural look of the Skeksis and you know our eye is so used to watching Dark Crystal and seeing that those characters so they didn't want to change the the formula but it was for me it was and then ultimately I you know there was a a hint of me going over to England and helping out. And uh, it was just, I couldn't, I didn't get the the job because they basically needed to hire uh, uh, UK um, personnel. So I, yeah. I lost out, but it was just a wonderful um, experience to get invited down and kind of see the, um, you know, what it took to do shooting a week of dark crystal. Man. It was pretty insane, actually. How mad would the internet have been if they were CG Gelflings? I think there would have been a big, <laughs> yeah, response. And, uh, you know, but like I said, I, I enjoyed the show. I just thought, like, if it was, if they were shorter episodes, if they were 20 minutes and you're out, um, there's something about Love, Death, and Robots and Primal where at that 20-minute mark, you you kind of are like, oh, this is a great great story and i'm i'm glad it's you know it's like leaving on a cliffhanger and you know we're going on to the next one uh i just think there is a there's a turning point time-wise um no i think you're totally correct i think it's um attention fatigue too yeah because there, there's a thing like the way i try to like whenever we intro a movie or screen something i always try to bully an audience into really paying attention like uh, we do a we do a found footage festival, like so mm-hmm. everything like the Blair Witch, and right. the importance I always thought of getting those movies in a theater was the theater kind of bullies you into paying attention. Yes, like like you shouldn't have your phone out. It's going to be loud. We're here to watch the movie, and the thing with found footage is it's so craft driven, like an edit or a cut or where the camera's focusing. Those are all done by a character, so you're yeah. missing part of the story if you're in the next room cooking. And I feel like puppetry is similar because when you come in, you're in awe of the artistry. But I also feel like it might benefit from an extra long format because, I mean, again, not a puppet example, but Anomalisa. Was that puppetry yeah. or was that, was that uh, stop, stop motion? Stop motion. See, now the thing that's so beautiful about um, non-human actors is that when you do eventually get that fatigue and you forget that you're looking at puppets and then mm-hmm. it's kind of all about the story now, like it's got to be what's happening. There's a moment where that fatigue, it's almost like when something's funny and then it's not funny and mm-hmm. then it's funny again, 
We're like at the end of Anomalisa. My God, you just start thinking of like how these aren't humans, but the emotions are so human. That's so true. Yeah. So I'm almost like maybe Randy, are you still out there? What What's that movie that you just went to go see? The the mother, the wife and the whore or something. The three, like four hour French New Wave film. I didn't go see it, but it's uh, it got a 4K restoration, which is what I was talking to you about. What, what's the name of that movie? Uh, I'm also forgetting the title of it. <laughs> the Mother and the Whore. The Mother and the Whore. So, you know, Ooh. I went and watched that movie where, it, honestly, I'm a little, I'm a glutton for punishment, clearly. Because I went yeah. to the Alamo at like noon to watch yeah. a four-hour, like, French New Wave film. Again, if you don't know what French New Wave is, it's kind of all of the... Uh, the flares of studio Hollywood are removed. Yes. So you're just kind of there on the street, hanging out with people struggling with alcoholism in a threesome. And, uh, right. you know, you kind of get a Friday thing. night, a Friday, <laughs> a Friday night in modern San Francisco. Yeah. And, um, I don't know, man, I, I want a puppet Epic, but I just, I'm, I'm curious. I think puppeteers like yourself don't get enough credit for how much hard work it is. Like how, how big of a team did you have when you were working on, the haunted swordsman. Um, I like on a shoot day, it usually was about, um, operating each character. It's about three puppeteers per care, per character, but they'll bounce over. You know, if we have a two, if we have two characters, you know, suddenly it's, you know, we're stretched. So we would have like maybe five puppeteers out for the day to do stuff, but usually it took at least two to three, working the samurai because there's there's one person on the head there's, here's one of the heads this oh, is our, oh my god this, and they're quite big i mean they're it's really so like, quickly he grabbed a head <laughs> off screen like he couldn't even blink and a head was on the screen this is this is a stuntman head so this was only used for about three shots so this was when he was um leaping to kill the um the the oni at the end and this is also when he was picked up by the Oni and thrown against the wall. Um, so it's just a, we just needed a stuntman, you know, uh, expression face and they're, they're hard resin. So that was a decision to, um, I didn't want them to be silicone. They could have been cast in silicone, which is very translucent, but I, to me that all of a sudden you're going across the unreal, the uncanny Valley. It's, there's something still about these that's puppety, and I kind of wanted to not try to convince people they're real people. I wanted it to thank you seem like <laughs> seem like puppets. So um, the 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 decision was, and they all I had a wig that you know like a top knot wig that would go on this, but I only had the budget to make one wig, so I had to like glue this on for the stunt, take it off, put it on back <laughs> on the hero. So um, I got, and then I have this is like this is like the you only see this character once and this is like the the creature that he would come come about for a future episode um this is just kind of a big demon um you know i love the dog ears um, yeah and this is so uh my friend jamie bezwarek who i worked with in new zealand at, on king kong he sculpted this and then sent me the file and then we outputted it here and then printed it and then molded it. So a lot of steps to get this guy. And, uh, all right. Now you printed it. Were you guys using 3d printers or yeah, yeah, we've kind of embraced 3d printing. Actually, I would say 
previous to um, like Millet Calder's end, no 3D printing, but Haunted Swordsman, I only I printed that character, but I also there's sort of like inside the body, there's sort of like this it it's like a trigger mechanism. Yeah. Like ice cream scoop um <laughs> the thing that this ball kind of locks into the socket and that's all printed um just oh. so that we kind of uh speed it along and just kind of print out three of them. And so when you your hand goes in the back, you squeeze the trigger, it raises the head up so that um and our thought was at rest, his head would always be kind of down. And then, so when you squeeze up, he's kind of like, you know, engaged. And then, uh, you know, we put a lot of thought in it because we could have done it the other way where you let go and his head goes up. And when you squeeze, his head comes down. But I always thought your natural inclination is to kind of like drop your head. And more often or not, we'd want cool shots of him like raising his head up. Um, so just little things like that, like in the mechanics of it. Um, but we've embraced 3D printing at work where I, at Spectral Motion, where I work, we really have embraced a lot of 3D printing. We still do traditional clay sculptures, but then we enhance things with um, with the printing process. Okay. I was wondering in my head while you were talking about that, I just imagined a uh, master sculptor who's now out of work. And yeah. very, very bold. No, they've really adapted. They've all pivoted. And like a lot of the sculptures we work with can do the traditional sculpt, or you can ask them to do it in ZBrush and they'll do it in ZBrush. And it's pretty remarkable. Um, and there's still something to be said for the, that traditional sculpted look. Um, we just finished, um, and it comes out next week. We, we worked on Guillermo del Toro's cabinet of curiosities Rad. and we did three of the episodes and so um we did uh there's no spoiler because it's in the title but we did ep graveyard rats and there there's a creature in there that's all traditionally clay sculpted and molded and that's what guillermo wanted and uh uh you know and then we did a lot of we didn't do too much 3d printing on any of the three episodes we worked on. So it was really, a, um, you know, all traditional stuff, but that's what Guillermo insisted. He knows even sculptor names. He knows the painters. <laughs> names. I'm sure he's so specific about what he describing the paint jobs that he wants. And I mean, he just uses these like eloquent expressions of like, uh, everything should be nicotine stained, you know, <laughs> Have you have you had the opportunity to see the museum in his house? Oh well, he owns one of my puppets from Millet Calder's End. He bought uh, yeah. he bought the Peter Cushing looking puppet. Oh, and, of course, dude. And then that traveled. I don't know if you guys saw the the museum show, but it played in L.A., Minneapolis, Toronto, and Mexico City. And uh, we, uh, but he he owns that, and that helped for the post-production of Miller Calder's End. I, I was like at the finish line and he was like, I need it. I, I'll buy it from you. And I was, and I was like, I still need to film one more scene and then I'll, then I'll sell it. So it was just timing, but uh, it really did help. It was like a, a godsend because I was at that, you know, all those hidden costs of like the final uh, post-production sound and, and making copy 
you know, making the final copies. So I, I needed the, the financial help at that point. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, the first thing I thought when you started pulling all these heads from off camera was yes. that how, like, why do you still own those? Because in my mind, I'm thinking what you would do is a crowdfunding thing, get fools like me to be like, oh my God, I need one of those heads. <laughs> like, I can only imagine what those Jack Skellington little heads would yeah. go for now if you had like screen used. Yeah. Well, I did, um, I, I did um, offer like for Kickstarter, you could, you could buy not this, not this character, but you could buy a casting of the, the hero head or the, um, or even a casting of the James Hong, that character head. So, um, you know, at the higher levels, I was able to um, have those as, as rewards. So it's, it really was uh, the Kickstarter process, both for Calder's End and, and Swordsman. I kind of had it dialed in. I'm about to start a third, you know, a new one. And the landscape has, keeps kind of shifting. So, like, I'm like, do I make Blu-rays? Because now people seem to, like, not buy. I'm a, you know, I love physical media. But, like, do, you know, it seems like downloads are kind of, way more popular and uh it, they're way easier like i just basically type in a button and you know and send them the download yeah where you know the packaging and the the blu-ray mastering cost something so it's a different landscape of what people want definitely no more dvds i'm kind of like not going to do dvds anymore but I'm here, here I can give you great counsel on that right now because we we shoot a regular Blu-ray Tuesday uh, show with one of our buddies at the Overlook Terrell, and mm -hmm. he and him we, we became fr I met him in a job interview. He was interviewing me because I thought it would be cool to learn how to build frames for pictures. Yeah, this is the kind of materialist I am. When you look around the room, I would spend yeah. my tax return money framing <laughs> paper art. So I met him in an interview and we hit it off talking about uh, James Wan. And I yeah. left thinking, I don't know if I got the job, but I think I have a new friend. And me and him, we deal with this all the time with Kickstarters. And one, I think it depends on the genre of the thing you're going to make. If it's at all like horror, yeah, you might just benefit from doing a very small run of a very fancy edition. Yeah, or, like a steel, steel box almost. Or, yep, you know, steel box, slipcover, maybe a couple like little inserts. It doesn't have to be anything special, but yeah. there's a whole community of people who pride themselves on just having a fantastic collection. Yeah. And when, you know, when we get hit with an EMP from another country or something, we'll all be laughing because it's like, we can still watch movies while all you were streaming everything. Yeah. And uh, I know we dish out some pretty good money for that, even for not the best film. Which is the secret you have is you have fantastic work to share. So give us a limited run and I'll, we'll throw out. Okay. Yeah, I, I'm still, I, you know, I definitely, I think now that I've already have the tube from before, I think it, it, I do have to have a Blu-ray run of some sort. Um, but there is like, I might actually do a, this is for a download. I don't know if I've seen this before where you offer a download, but then you offer a download director's cut, which has more stuff. It's like a different price point and, you know, it's a little, you know, extended. I kind of have to go into shooting the film knowing like 
okay, I got to make a director's cut and a shorter cut. So um, I might approach it that way. That way I can do a 15 minute film, still get it into festivals. Cause that seems like the magic cutoff. Like it's gotta be really good 15. Yeah. If you start getting into 20, 25 festivals, start no. hating you. Like, <laughs> we, we program a festival and because we do um, found footage, the format is at play. So we're even a little bit looser, but that was yeah. a long conversation we had where it's like, what is a short and how do you show something that's 40 minutes long? Yeah. You know, the idea is normally open up with the cool short that kind of uh, sets the tone for the feature that's going to follow or will enhance it. And that's a perfect yeah. marriage. But when you got like a 30 minute movie, you, one problem you might have, which is one I addressed earlier is you might be totally fucking into that short and then it ends and you're like, no, this was, it felt like just act one. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, man. <laughs> Leave me <laughs> more. But if you make a director's cut, it better be on the damn Blu-ray because. Yes. Yeah. Of course. Of course. Now there is one thing that happened that kind of uh, hit on that where the invitation. Now, how, I don't know how up with horror movies you are. Are you a horror guy? I do like, um, I'm not like a total gore guy. I mean, I like, um, you know, the, the witch and the white house. And, uh, I kind of like a little more, I guess, of the highbrow, the Randy stuff, you know, the kind of <laughs> the, uh, highbrow horror as, as opposed to just pure gore. Um, you, you mentioned James Wan. I worked with him on malignant. Um, and he was, he's a wonderful guy. I, that guy is the best to work with. I, I had such a good time and, uh, high marks. I mean, he's just a, such an approachable guy and, he is one of those directors who gets in and is doing the last minute blood, you know, work. Yeah. Like he'll, he'll go in and do the final dressing on stuff. So I'm a, I'm a big, I didn't know, you know, I just knew the conjuring and insidious and, um, and, uh, but he's great to work with. I hope to work with him again. He's just, uh, well, super cool. all right. Well, we're back to the uh, Guillermo del Toro is the last director who's going to hire Geppetto conversation. Yeah. Because, so you worked on Malignant, which again, yeah. Randy likes the highbrow stuff. Me and Clark are more malignant men. So <laughs> we are malignant men. So again, fantastic. We loved Malignant. Fantastic work. Um, it was bonkers. They, they they kind of when they came to Spectral Motion and explained it, they were. Um, we were, it was tough to wrap your head around because it was kind of one of those things like, wait a minute. So the character walks backwards or how did you know, all the, you know, they kind of were explaining, um, you know, it was very, and so we had this at any given time, we had this, all these tables laid out for all these different versions of um, the, the Gabriel character of like, okay, we need the, this stunt person to wear the backwards mask or they wear the creature mask on the front, but wear the costume backwards. It was like, so there were like 10 different versions you could pick from. It's like picking <laughs> uniforms for a football team. It really was. And, and every night, you know, it was all night shoots. So it was a tough shoot, but like we, they had to stop and, and think they're like, wait a minute. Okay. We'll do stunt man wearing the, frontward facing backwards suit, you know, it's really crazy. Um, but I'm sorry. I totally derailed. No, 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 you're fine. Not, hey, you're I, I want to hear about backwards man all day. Yeah, no, we, we, we've sort of naturally ventured into your, um, incredibly impressive history, you know, 
career that you've been able like Kevin, you've worked pretty consistently, um, you know, in a pretty brutal town. So congratulations for that. And it's just, uh, I mean, you've worked on so many things and like, we clearly don't have time to go on all of this. Well, hold on. Okay. Let me, can I sneak in? Well, I've got two that we have to talk about because inner child Clark would lose his money. Okay. All right. Let me sneak this in then. So, uh, what I was building towards, uh, Guillermo del Toro is the last man who's hiring Geppetto. And what I meant by that was the, uh, the Italian sculptor who, when you put a laptop in front of him, went, I can't do this. So, but now you worked with, uh, James Wan on malignant yet his new movie megan seems to be is are we going all digital here or yeah you know i'm not too sure um see what the well, fuck he's also just producing it. it i know but i want him to work with my boy kevin over here and this doll which again now earlier he mentioned that there's a there was a reason to not give um puppets translucent skin because you want it to still clearly be a puppet. Yeah. Here's right. the thing. Now Clark said thank you because you were you you were getting a little scared. Well, no, I'm team people. You know that. <laughs> well, here's yeah. the thing. Puppets are terrifying. So there's this whole genre of film that like the boy, which I actually love. But when oh, everybody, yeah. when everybody saw Brahms, they're like, "All right, awesome, Child's Play." Or usually not because everybody refers to those movies as Chucky. But everybody yeah. just wants to see the Brahms stab people. And it's like, now with Megan, we're doing that. But that, I don't, is there an actual doll involved at all in that production? I think they did make a practical one. I'm pretty sure, if I'm not mistaken, I think Weta Workshop built something. Um, And I know they wanted to kind of go with the skin look because it's supposed to be sort of like the iPod version of like, (laughs) like, of a Chucky, right? So they wanted it to have this like skin like quality. So yeah. um, they uh, it's uh, it's interesting always picking the, the skin choice. Like for example, the, you know, I was mentioning this is like a resin, but the, he can't speak. So when he spoke in Haunted Swordsman, it was a digital, we only made him say like three or four lines and John, Jonathan Banta, who's like a digital guy, he did the, he did the shot of him saying, we just gave him so little dialogue and we made the James Hong character do all the talking, which was, you know, get James Hong going. And he just kind of (laughs) rants and raves. I mean, he's, he's like exactly, he's he's exactly who you think, uh, like recording a recording session with him is, is he warms up by doing his big trouble speech. Like that's him like testing, testing, and then he'll do the whole speech. And you're like, uh, this is insane. <laughs> is he the most spry 90 year old you've ever met? Yes, he is. He's, uh, he was really, I, if you recall, he, he's like kind of fighting off the, there's like a, a crow, like a raven pecking at him. Mm-hmm. And we were just doing wild dialogue. And we're at my friend, my friend's a sound recordist, uh, has an, a beautiful studio and he's by the, he's on the mic and he's like doing the, the, they're like, get away from me. And then he goes, and then he spits on my friend's nice piano. We're like, <laughs> we're just like, oh, there you go. He's just uh, in character. Like, and then he was like, sorry about the spit. You know? <laughs> he's in it. I love but, it. Uh, he's pretty, he's super cool. And, you know, uh, talk about spry. He's like, I'm like, Hey, uh, 
you know, thanks again. And he's like, when's the next one? Let's do it. Like he really wants to like just record the next thing. Um, he's like the hardest working guy in show business. Well, he has like 450 credits to his name. Yeah. Still going strong. <sighs> Wild. <laughs> I mean, Hey, uh, you know, mortgage ain't gonna pay for itself. So All right. I, yeah. Sneak in here before we get on big trouble talk because we'll never let Kevin Nee leave okay. if we do that. All right, so Kevin, there's again. Uh, I encourage all our listeners to go and look at your I- I- incredible career. Um, and I'm going to point out two movies that uh, played a very big part in my childhood. Uh, both one was haunting, and one I have very fond memories of. Uh, and both get Russell. I, I'll, I'll yield the floor to you. Do you want? me to start with the haunting choice are the one that makes me very happy. Were you haunted by I was haunted by this film. Save that one for last. Okay. Kevin, you worked on a film called Mousetrap uh, (laughs) that I still to this day will revel. I love it. Um, And part of it is just because the, you know, it's so impressive the the all the practical effects in that movie and i and honestly i think it gets overlooked because it's a fun movie and it's just like all the rube goldberg sort of setups yeah. and that thing like what what did what were you what was your part in that film i would say i mean i was kind of in the general shop working away on different um you know parts of the the various versions of the mouse and shane mahan who is the he was the supervisor on that. He was one of Stan Winston's lead guys. And now he's one of the owners of legacy effects. Shane was in charge of that show and, you know, treated it like each, um, we had a different mice that could do just one task really well. And so one, I really, the one that comes back to me is he, he gets in bed and he pulls the sheet up and he goes to sleep. And it was just a very, like we rehearsed it to death at the shop. We would do, um, and I think if you go to the Stan Winston School website, they have behind the scenes making ofs, and there's a profile on Mouse Mouse Hunt, and you'll see the test videos of that. You'll hear me call out. Um, I was usually videotaping the tests, so you'll hear my voice action you know yeah (laughs) so uh we we did a lot of testing i didn't go to set for that but it was really a uh that show yeah really under the radar and it's a really solid film it's great i I, nathan lane he's he's incredible but i I, all right very quickly you talked about the the mice i was very uh curious about that so like working with animals and animal handlers like so you're saying they had like specialized mice for doing you know certain things is that no, no, like puppet mice puppets so oh, we build that makes way mice. more sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> we make a um a puppet that could just do like upper body things we have one that could you know run across the floor so i thought we were um, looking at a green mile situation yeah hold on no 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 <laughs> You no. thought there were different mice? Sure, I don't know. Okay, dude. I'm learning about Hollywood today. <laughs> and the second, the one that haunted me. Now, Russell, yeah. I, I'm sure All you've right. seen this film. Randy, I'm sure you've seen this film. Oksana, I'm sure you've seen this film. Talking about Congo. Uh, dude, I almost said that. Congo. <laughs> Kevin, let's wind the clocks back. 
to Congo was what ninety five. Yeah, and 90? Congo, Congo was a huge film for me because I got to not only work in the studio, you know, and kind of work with all these amazing guerrilla performers, sort of the top. You know, there's there's sort of like five guys that are like the most amazing. Most of them are retired um, now, but uh, you know. John Alexander and Peter Elliott were the two lead gorillas, like Grills in the Mist, Greystoke, you know, they, um, Mighty Joe Young, they were the, the gorilla guys. Wow. So they came on the Congo. Um, I was in charge of dressing a guy named Namir El Qadi, who is from, hang on. I'm having so much fun today. <laughs> I know. Oh. So Namir was in. Was in Quest for Fire. Oh, man. oh, so cool. Which is like a personal. I love Quest for Fire. Yeah. It's like such a. So, and here's Ron Perlman. So Ron, oh, Ron signed man. this, and Namir signed this, and um, and uh, yeah. So I, I dress. I was in charge of uh, this one gorilla who was played by Namir, who was the coolest guy, and uh, I got to go. And then we filmed on the Sony lot, so we filmed on the Wizard of Oz stage, which is crazy. Um, in all that orange dust, it kind of was like uh, the set. We got there, and it was very much like we thought. This looks like a Roadrunner cartoon. It's so orange, like the, it was very deserty, and uh, the fur got really orange. We had to clean out the fur every night. Oh, um, man, you know these guys sweat a ton too. It's really, um, you know, the suits are just soaked. And uh, there's this stuff you spray every night called NBAC. That's this like really harsh, like, um, you know, disinfectant spray. Yeah. But when I ever smell that, I'm like the smell of Congo. It's like, as soon oh. as I smell this disinfectant spray, but then I got to go to Costa, uh, yeah, Costa Rica for about four weeks and we filmed kind of near the volcanoes there. So it was okay. really crazy. We were on set with Tim Curry and, uh, um, who else is in that? Laura Linney. And I mean, it was shot by the DP was Alan Davio who shot ET. So it was really, um, kind of this, and it was directed by Frank Marshall, who is, you know, kind of the Spielberg's producer. So it was yeah. Kathleen Kennedy and Frank Marshall, uh, you know, Frank directing it. So, um, back then Costa Rica was it was starting to be a tourist spot, but still it felt very wild. We were shooting and it, everything felt very dangerous. You know, there was a, uh, gosh, there's some horrific stories, but there was a <laughs> the location, the location manager, you know, he'd go to this, the area of the jungle that we're filming in to make sure there's no like horrible snakes or, um, you know, dangerous insects he got bit oh. in the leg by a bot fly oh no do not youtube it it's terrible it's gross. is that the one that burrows in you yeah it burrows in you and oh. you kind of have you have to you can't dig it out oh. you have to let it so it's like yeah. a mummy yeah you have to let it gestate oh, under your skin God. it's it's so terrifying because he would be like oh it kicked like he would kind of <laughs> Feel a kick, and this is the crazy part. He would tape, he put the bandaid. He put a little piece of like baloney on the to draw it out, and sure enough, it came out. A couple of these 
critters came out of them that are like larvae. And it was, just, <laughs> it was, horrific. It was so horrific. Um, but he was such a tough guy. And then um, other great memories, like Jules Sylvester was a, the um, animal wrangler. So he, we had a lot of days where we would film, we'd film and then we'd be like just in a holding pattern. So we'd be on set. So if this, if the sky suddenly changed, we'd have to be ready to get the gorillas into suits. But then most of the day we're just sitting there like out in the jungle. So we're like getting bored and they said, Hey, just go. Um, we asked Jules if we could help him out. And he was like, yeah, help me collect butterflies. So we'd go out and, um, you know, with butterfly nets and catch butterflies. And then he taught us, like, you put like a little ice pack and you kind of like put it in a little pack and it just, um, you know, they go into like hypo, they go into like hypothermic shock basically. And then they would be frozen and then he'd be like, Oh, give me that butterfly. Then he'd put it on a leaf and then hit it with a hairdryer and it would warm up and it would just be like, my sister uh, held a birthday party for my niece who just turned three. They flew in butterflies from Orlando, Florida, and they were, they came in a freezer. And, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, they don't die. They're just like in shock yeah. or you know, frozen status. And then you could, you could kind of really artfully put them on a leaf, like right in front of the camera and then hit it with a hair dryer, And then they would, ju- you'd start to see them kind of like, come to life and they'd roll the camera. And, um, so that was, it was uh, a lot of fun. It was, uh, uh, great memories. And, uh, um, yeah, I look back on Congo and then, you know, you think it's going to be the most amazing movie of all time. (laughs) And then, Ooh, like this isn't, this isn't so good. It it holds its place now, you know, where it needs to, I slur movies that aren't like horror genre enough by calling them cool guy films. I think they're like an aesthetic that a lot of like lame dudes would aspire to Congo to me. I think that may be one of the best pulp films I've ever seen. Where if you think of like 50s, kind of like Indiana Jones. Yeah. That movie's got a hot air balloon. It's got a laser powered by a diamond. It's got a jungle with a... Honestly, I've I've had... um, that okay back in the day where you would have a black box and kind of steal pay-per-view channels congo yeah. was one of those movies that played all the time yeah yeah so i kind of took it for granted but whenever it comes up in conversation or we're looking back on it man i only have a lot of admiration for it me too so i think congo's actually it's ready for like some retro screenings at this point so i just remember that <laughs> cave scene where all the gorillas were there and i just reminded yeah. me of like uh the brady bunch in hell because yeah. it just had that grid and it was just like oh god it's terrifying there's there's something really uh it reminds me there's something very interesting shooting in another country and there's sort of like no um sort of no boundaries with um like if a star comes into another country or an actor that's recognizable or something so we we were in congo we're in a like it was a weekend and we were in this like bar and uh, all of a sudden, you know, Ernie Hudson's in the movie. Ernie Hudson comes in. The DJ just stops the music, puts on Ghostbusters. Oh. <laughs> and they're like, you know, da-da-da-da, you know, Ernie Hudson, Ghostbusters. And he has to do the kind of like, <laughs> and, you, know, like you know, do that. And uh, oh, Ernie. the other time that happened and we were 
on another gorilla movie in Jamaica called <laughs> Instinct. Oh, and uh, you know, it was a. I think the gorillas turned out great. It was a Anthony Hopkins movie, and uh, oh. um, uh, it's uh, Stan Winston did the gorillas, and we just really uh, the the director John Turtletaub wanted to shoot it as natural as possible, and so the gorillas really turned out great. Uh, they had a baby gorilla, and it was played by Vern Troyer, Mini Me, and uh, this was early in his career, so he had not done much stuff. And um, the one thing about the, you know, we were staying in this hotel, and again, it was like on a weekend, and we're like kind of going down to the bar, and all of a sudden, Ernie, or I'm sorry. Vern Troyer is like swept up by the local people and like carried around <laughs> like no shame, just like da, da 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 And he's just like, Hey, put me down. Like, um, you know, it was just sort of like, you know, we had to get Vern back. Oh, and, uh, it was, uh, it was, you know, kind of that cultural thing where it was just like, Hey, it's yeah. okay to you know, pick this guy up and show him around. Uh, but, uh, well, they were celebrating. Uh, he just won the big game. They wanted to celebrate. Yeah. They carry him around like, like, yeah. a, you know, like a soccer tournament. That's right. Know, the Stanley cup. You know, That's right. Okay. <laughs> now how, how's instinct rate as a movie? Because I'm looking at this and I feel kind of checked for having never seen I, it. I know the poster. I didn't know it was a, I didn't know it was Dude, a gorilla Anthony movie. Hopkins, Cuba yeah. Jr. Donald Sutherland, like this movie stacked and I don't think I've ever watched yeah. it. Oh no, it's, it's a solid watch. It's really cool. And, uh, you know, it's not, it's not quite like gorillas in the mist where you're kind of like really um, the gorillas are front and center. It's kind of more like a, a father daughter relationship, like um, Hopkins and Mara Tierney is the daughter. And it's kind of a bit of that. And they Hopkins is kind of like half, you know, he's plays like a half crazed guy who is brought back because he, you know, I think he's in prison for fighting off for for killing people because he's trying to defend the gorillas so it's kind of that sort of story and uh i i recommend it it's like a good you know kind of a cool cool film and the gorillas look great i was really happy with them and you puppeteered gorillas in there yeah yeah there was definitely i puppeteered the baby um there was sort of there was a a vern size and then there was an even smaller one and so we did the like uh, and and Anthony Hopkins really helped kind of sell it too, like he the way he was holding it. Again, the the, the nicest guy, like you know, call me Tony, you know that kind of guy. Call me Tony, the biography like, of Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> yeah, my name's Tony. You're like, yeah, I know who you are. <laughs> well, kind damn, Kevin. Uh, dude, we've kept you for too long, but you're such an interesting dude, and. I, I when I was talking to Clark before, I'm like anybody who's made a career out of puppeteering definitely is probably going to be a thoughtful dude yeah. who cares a lot about the craft. But I'm kind of shocked how um, how much of an enthusiast you seem too. Like I'm I'm kind of bummed we didn't just sit here and talk about movies with you. Um, yeah, I I you know I love the whole process, and if I had to like even making these films i love every aspect i love the sound design i love the editing i love you know the costume design and uh um and then just working with my friends that i've made over the years like um you know if there's a certain creature 
that I have in mind. I know like a sculptor that I'd love to tackle it. And I kind of just say, go crazy. Like there's, there's sculptors that can do, you know, very Giger like characters, you know, HR Giger style creatures. And then there's guys who can do likenesses of, of actors really well. So, um, you know, it's just wonderful to kind of reunite with friends, uh, you know, people I haven't seen in years who are, are, are familiar with my short films. So now everyone kind of knows what I'm going for. So they kind of jump in and, you know, I can pay them not great, but I can pay them a bit. And, uh, I kind of tell, tell them that like, and pay, it'll be terrible pay, but I can pay you. And, uh, um, people are happy to join in and, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really psyched for this. The, the new one, I'm just in the early stages, but it's uh, like an Icelandic horror, um, kind of an explorer story. I'm so <laughs> it's, it's, it's sold. It's yeah. Period, uh, film. And, uh, I'm working with Tab, the writer who wrote Haunted Swordsman and Tab wrote Gorillas in the Mist and a lot of mm-hmm. Disney projects. Like he did his bread and butter for many years was like hunchback Notre Dame, Tarzan, um, Atlantis. He wrote all these animated films and then, but he also wrote grills and mist and he wrote, uh, he's written a lot of, you know, children's films, but also like adult films. And he loved samurai films. So we were like bonded on that. So he joined me on this new one. We just started with this, explorer premise and then it got more icelandic and then i got a hold of sion who co-wrote the northman and so sion is gonna do he was a i sent him haunted swordsman he's like hey how do i how can i help and uh so we're taking a draft and sending it to him to just icelandic it you know make it very uh you know, make sure the mythology is all correct. Okay. And, so was he like Edgar's like historical guidance or like context dude? Yes. I, I think, I mean, I think he co-wrote it, so I'm not sure. I don't know what degree, but um, he is, he is celebrated as one of Iceland's top novelists and poets. And he wrote, um, he wrote a lot of songs with Bjork. So he co-wrote. Whoa. <laughs> So if you know Bjork, a hell of a resume. Yeah, yeah. He wrote Bachelorette and uh, and Isabel and a couple other songs, and he was nominated. So Dancer in the Dark, that film way back, he was nominated for an Oscar for the song he wrote with Bjork. So one one of the most uplifting films of all time, Dancer in the Dark. Oh my gosh, that (laughs) will rip you apart. Oh God. What a bridge. Um, so I'm really psyched. I'm really kind of taking my time with this one, but I just want to, you know, have fun with every single aspect. So starting with the the two, there's two explorers. So I'm kind of working my way out from designing those two characters and then all the creatures and lore of, you know, of the place. Dude, I'm getting goosebumps. That sounds perfectly up my alley. Yeah, all you had to sell us on it, Kevin, all you had to say was the new one. Okay. Yeah, I, I, that is That's fair. It. And Kevin, man, we got to have you back on. I Well, man, this is two, a, and a, two and a half years in the making. I, I, oh, I'd love to. I'd dude, love to. I, 
you're you're fantastic and you're a very interesting dude too um so again i highly recommend everybody go out there and they buy the haunted swordsman blu-ray that's available is this your website the spirit cabinet yeah the spirit cabinet.com and uh it's at the moment i only have the haunted swordsman blu-rays i used to have i don't know if t-shirts are still on there but i had t-shirts i've kind of been um i've sold out of millet calder's end um basically i have to like make a new pressing of that but um uh that is going to eventually happen um i probably will do like for the kickstarter i will probably do a fancier maybe i'll do haunted swordsman Miller Calder's End as a collected cool. um, disc that will have new art and stuff like that to, uh, you know, do that old Blu-ray like, oh, you got to buy the Blu-ray again. <laughs> you, know, that, um, you know, new cover. You know, that sort You're of acting like we won't do it. Do you want to know how <laughs> many copies of Friday the 13th I have? Actually, <laughs> Friday the 13th is a perfect example because I have three different complete box sets of that shit. Well, so... <laughs> And the last one I bought, I wasn't even happy about it. Yeah, physical media is one of the few things that, like, you know, it's okay to do a pyramid scheme on. Yeah. Like, you got so many collector's editions of, yeah, it's fine. But but I think the Army of Darkness have the most of everything. Oh, God. There's so many Army of Darknesses. But you need it. They got a different ending. They have a – you need it. That's all I'm going to say. As a true addict of film. Yeah, I just got – I've been trying to get through this. um, Have you seen this folk folk art – this is crazy. This is really, um, and I kind of am, you know, this has been very inspirational for the, for the Icelandic one that I'm doing. God it's damn it. Kind of folk or horror stuff. Yeah. We I, bought that. Was that, did Severn put that one out? You guys ever see the navigator, this uh, New Zealand film? No, the navigator of medieval Odyssey. So this guy, he wrote the draft of alien three. That was like the wood planet one, but the, this is the movie that they all said, get this guy to do Alien 3 because everyone watched this movie. And this is a um, a very cool, you know, part black and white, part color. It's like a crazy um, – it's one of my favorites. I really – Well, have I? God, this yeah. looks fucking rad. Dude, okay, every you. here's the thing. I think Kevin has proven his uh, knowledge of his worthiness film. to you. Yeah, well, not to me. He he did that with the Haunted Swordsman. I man, I'm a fan for life from there. And when the Kickstarter gets up and everything, please be in contact with us because we're uh, we're fans and we're, we're oh, cheerleaders sure. of yours for sure. So um, again, the last time, if you if you want to watch a Haunted Swordsman, buy the Blu-ray, put it on, invite your friends over. Just throw it on before you watch a movie and uh, you'll be the cool guy that knows all the shit that they don't. And you'll be their cinema guru from then on. Um, Kevin, I'm warning you now, we're going to be bugging you because we got to talk to you more, man. Oh, please, please. Anytime. And uh, yeah, I'm going to be, I I don't know when I'll be launching this. I kind of want to shoot a little test scene and then kind of, you know, put it all together in a proper Kickstarter. So it might not come out till, uh, the beginning of next year, because I want to kind of make sure the characters are looking great and uh, and shoot a little scene. But uh, yeah, I can't wait. To, uh, yeah, it was great, great uh, yeah, to talk. Yeah, to dude, guys. don't be shy. Any any updates you got, let us know and we'll share them. Um, but before I let you go, I'm I'm throwing yeah. a hail mary out here. Okay, okay. And you're just such a thoughtful uh, consumer of 
cinema that I'm, I'm I bet you haven't, but I if you've seen Halloween Ends, I just want to know if you like it or don't. You know, I I actually zoomed to the last ten minutes. Was that <laughs> terrible? No, no. And I did. You know the uh, the whole melee at the end was was very cool. You know, but. Um, hey, you're not, you don't, know, don't try and save my feelings here. Like, okay. Honestly, I love that first, you know, the first film and even the second film, I just love so much the first one, like, you know, do you guys still get like chills? Like if you watch the first one, oh, does yeah. it take you back? Does it take you back to the very first time you saw it? And you're like, you know, when he's gone and then Loomis says, I just remember a kid on my school bus told me the ending. And I was like, no way would they do that. And then you see it. And uh, um, it's so funny hearing um, when you're a kid and you don't see the movie, but someone explains the movie to you. Oh, yeah. And then you see it and their explanation was so off. But, um, All the but, time. Yeah. Yeah. Someone did that with Exorcist for me once. And they were like, it sounded like a boxing match at the end. I was like, and then you see but uh, I don't know. Are you... What do you guys tell me your thoughts on Halloween ends? I enjoyed it. I, so I liked it, but I think, so I'm guessing you probably watched the end because there's a, uh, there's kind of like a conversation about how ridiculous or how kind of uh, unsatisfactory that ending was. Um, I think that those movies are something completely, well, okay. Franchise horror slashers. We've learned yeah. that community does not like anything new. And there's a little bit of a bait and switch here because the 2018 version of Halloween was a mm -hmm. requel, which was exactly the same thing. Just to kind of switch with Laurie Strode. This movie, I think, makes the whole trilogy make more sense. And there's a yeah. subtext in there that a lot of slasher fans aren't used to. And I really I keep advocating for like thoughtful film fans to revisit the whole thing. You got to watch all three and there's kind of a beautiful little story being told, but you need all three of them. And if you're just coming into Halloween ends to the three, not the Rob Zombie, the David Gordon Green. Yeah. yeah the David Gordon Green ones. Yeah. There's an interesting little compact slasher thing going on that I think, you know, when we're talking about like Nordic legend, I feel yeah. like they kind of give Michael Myers a human deity curse treatment in these films Oh, cool. And and he's not like a tangible dude because, you know, the problem, the thing people complain about with like Jason is he literally dies and comes back and there's not much of an explanation. He's just like a zombie yeah. now. And I think this movie's kind of dealing with like trauma and it's an interesting time to consume that. So I don't know. I would love to hear like your thoughts on it. So yeah, I'm giving you yeah. homework, Kevin. <laughs> I, I don't think I even saw the middle one. The uh... Oh, dude. Oh, Halloween that, Kills is bonkers. It's that's the one people hate. I love that movie, and it's no, oh, cool. it's not a perfect film, but it's kind of exactly what it's slasher a, fans want. It's something different, and and that's why I like the David Gordon Green, um, you know, series of it because you know he's an indie guy. He came in, you know, through the ranks, yeah, you know, with George yeah. Washington, George Washington, you know, yeah. all that's and I and that's how I knew him, and I love him. And then he started going to the the studio side of things, and he got we, you know, Your Highness came out like, what the <laughs> hell is this? Yeah. And then, but you know, he he came up with McBride, and McBride co-wrote the screenplay, and Jody Hill, and I love all those guys. So I yeah, it's it's super interesting that they hired him for it. 
And uh, I yeah. like what he did with it. It's interesting. Dude, I had do to- you mind? Do you guys mind? What, what are your thoughts on like the mask kind of keep getting more and more, you know, turning almost to wood look or, you know, like just getting more and more charred? Is it, are you on board with the look or, or? So I, th- I feel like this is more of a question I should feel. Uh, <laughs> the mask is a, you know, specific, like if you want, if you want to really split hairs with slasher, with slasher characters, you have the unmasked and the masked. And it's mm-hmm. funny because you get the problem you get with pro wrestling where you have like, uh, I'm a clown character like Dink and Doink. And yeah. what ends up happening is nobody ever owns that character. It's always a different person, right? So you're also dealing with different directors in every movie. So everybody kind of wants to meddle with it and they don't want to use the people from the last one. So yeah. the Halloween franchise is kind of notorious for having the dumbest looking evolution of that mask yeah it started looking comical like a copy of a copy of a copy and with with this trilogy in particular i think i i really think there is a kind of like the man the myth the legend going on so i think Mm -hmm. that evolution is super thoughtful in its approach the whole now rob zombie shit is kind of comical because he's he's almost like uh you know i don't know uh, free base Michael Myers at the end of two, yeah, where he's looking like he's living under an underpass or something, which he yeah. does in this one. I, yeah, <laughs> ironically, but yeah, I, you know, um, Kevin, I'm a, I'm a, I look like a nice gentleman, and uh, you know, I've got very soft features, um, and I seem very unassuming, but at the end of the day, <laughs> I am a very, uh, you know, mischievous misanthrope, and I love chaos. And so if you want to monkey up the mask, go ahead and do it. I'm all for yeah. disruption, baby. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. So, Kevin. I always, I always love the moments in pretty much all of them where, where it starts to come off and then they quickly put it back yeah. on. Okay. You know, that's always like, because as an audience, you're like, oh, God, I want to see that weird face. Like, what is what does he look like now? You know, that sort of moment. Uh, I do love. I do love that. I think I love love that from Friday Thirteenth as well too. When you see like, you know, the the boy, you know, look or something, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. In uh the um part seven where Jason goes up against Carrie essentially, or yeah, that one. There's the great reveal of him with like he's undead now, so it's almost yeah. like you're we're almost like veering into puppet territory, where it's like there yeah. couldn't be a yeah full circle. That would have been cool. When I were- when I worked at Tom's, Tom Savini's uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, he had this upstairs storage that was just chock full of all his props from all the movies. And I remember seeing the um, the Friday the 13th, the final chapter of head that slides down the machete yeah. at the end. And you could still, you could pull the cables and have him go like, no, you know, like, <laughs> you know. And, and when you watch it, they're kind of, they're trying to do like, 10 emotions as he's sliding down the, the thing. It's like, you know, like anger, pathos, you know, kind yeah. of all, all the emotions going down. To, uh, I do love, uh, I love the final chapter. Dude, it's kind of a final um, chapter is incredible. But my favorite thing is you given a hot take on the puppeteering of Jason as oh, he's sliding yeah, down yeah. a machete. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm pretty sure Alec Gillis, I, there, there were a couple LA effects guys who were on, who joined Tom on that shoot. So they, 
they had stories and uh and tom was super cool he was my first boss so he's like the first adult that i met that was like a little kid who like had this like you know amazing uh you know joy and wonder and he wanted you know he was like part stuntman and part you know he loved crazy practical jokes he, like i'd walk into the shop and he had a flash pot you know like those those <laughs> flash pots that go off and it would just be like this blinding explosion you know and he's like giggling you know like we're back from lunch and he hit like the cable and you know it's like you're on the side of jackass or something yeah i i was like kind of a little kid and there was a dumbwaiter in the shop and they're like kevin get in and they put me in the dumbwaiter and start lowering it into this basement below this industrial building and i'm like kind of like touching the brick wall and then all of a sudden it's like there's no wall and it's this big you know you hear like rats scurrying away and <laughs> like bring me up you know and uh they're giggling up there so it was a lot of um yeah a lot of great times in pittsburgh and then you I'm sued just... him and shut down production <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, no i'm so thrilled dude clearly you're cool because you're hanging out with us this whole time and uh i just i gotta let you know i appreciate the hell out of it you're so thoughtful and talented. Uh, you should not be here with us. But oh no, it's great talking to you guys. And uh, you know, I I'm so uh, happy that you know Haunted Swordsman, you know, clicked with you guys. Oh, it's a drug, and we're fiending for more. So please and, get to it. Well, also, I don't have as low a self esteem as Russell does. So <laughs> um, thank you for being here, Kevin. And I see you as my equal now. <laughs> Kevin, this was a blast, man. Thanks so much, man. Of course, of course. Anytime. And I uh, hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Stat. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye. <laughs>